everyone, and welcome to episode 116 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, a discussion on Kevin Harvick, what to make of a winless season so far, what it means for the playoffs, and maybe most importantly, his future. That, plus our big Michigan preview. But first, as always, we start with a quick look back. This week, a look back at the 2006 Carfax 250 from Michigan. David, I just laughed because at first, you officially stumped me, man, with this one. We're talking about a Bush Series race from 2006, old school. This race was won by Dale Earnhardt Jr. It featured some very mid-2000s names like Curtis Davis. Bernie Lamar and Danny O'Quinn Jr. But honestly, David, at first I had no idea the significance of this race. I did do some research for you. I found a few stories we can tell and talk about, including an early appearance from The Carl. Not Carl Edwards, The Carl. David, I'll let you take it from here. Uh, Okay. I can't wait to hear your side of that. But for me, this is my favorite Michigan race ever. It was a combination of an inventive rules package run by the then Bush series, now Xfinity series that year. And the added fact that 23 drivers in this race went on to run the next day's cup series race. So it was well stocked for talent. And this was the product of what is now a bygone era. The super talented cup drivers getting into Bush series cars with less pressure than they ordinarily would have uh, in cars that were fun to drive. And at Michigan, there was a bit of a drafting element to uh, this race and this rules package, but it wasn't overwhelming. Carl Edwards got out to a three second lead at one point. Uh, There was legitimate green flag strategy. There was short pitting, long pitting. And for a Bush Series race, which is shorter, we don't often see that, it did sort of offer a little bit of everything. And this race in particular, I rewatched it this morning, and now I realize we just should dedicate an entire episode to it because loop data (laughs) for it does exist, right? Um, This was racy from the onset. And to frame this properly, the front row consisted of Mark Martin and Jeff Burton, two drivers not known for over-the-top aggression. And starting from the front row, meaning at one point in the weekend, they had the fastest cars because there was qualifying. Those two combined to lead one lap in this race. And it was the first lap. After that, it was two hours of guys sending it. Just a collective cavalier attitude. Not reckless, mind you, but stylistically, we saw things in this race that we probably would not have seen from this same group of drivers in the cup race. And there was just a lot less at stake. I don't know that it was fun. They took it seriously, but I think some fun was had. It was a short race, just over two hours, 128 laps in total, five drivers led 10 or more laps. There's a lot going on here. I encourage folks to to look up the results of this race, look at the sheer names in this race. The race came down to a final restart, and I might add it was a single file restart. It saw Carl Edwards in the lead ahead of Robbie Gordon driving for Junior Motorsports, 
and Dale Earnhardt Jr. driving for DEI. There wasn't anyone keeping track of this, so this had to have been purely anecdotal or uh, stemming from scanner chatter. But the TNT broadcast crew really laid it on thick, the idea that Robbie Gordon was an extremely poor restarter, even noting that Carl Edwards would probably be okay for the restart. And as if on cue, Robbie Gordon had a brilliant restart. He got (laughs) to the gas quicker than Carl Edwards. He ducked to uh, the low side, the inside of Edwards. Earnhardt then from third went high. So Edwards isn't quite caught in the middle yet, but it's going to end up that way. That forced Edwards to deal with both of them. I'm going to assume that he also thought Gordon was going to completely muff this restart, and he didn't. And this is sort of where Edwards made a mess of things. It appeared as if he just ceded the spot to Gordon in order to go a little bit higher, block Earnhardt, and in doing so, he got arrow loose before Earnhardt finished him right off. It spun Edwards. The race ended under caution. Earnhardt wasn't first when NASCAR called it. Uh, Gordon was relegated to third. Casey Mears got by him for second. So right off the bat, weird finish. Carl Edwards did not take this well, Alan. No, nope. complained <laughs> over over the over the radio that Earnhardt should have been black flagged. Then he drove up and hit Earnhardt under caution in the driver's side door. Earnhardt's hand was out the window, and Edwards very nearly hit it. That ticked off Earnhardt, and that was the launch of what became a little bit of a cold war between the two. Nothing major would go on to happen, but that was kind of the start of that. Edwards, by the way, no surprise here. He was interviewed afterwards, smile on his face, talking about how much fun he had that, oh, it's racing. And there were some laughs, but clearly he was put off by the whole affair. Quintessential Edwards post-race interview. And I, and honestly, just in watching this race, he he should have won it. He pooched the restart as the leader and we're in, on a single file restart where he had a significant advantage and it gave this... Um, this ending, which I think polarized the folks that watched it. Yeah, great explanation. And that's what I was referring to when I said an early appearance of the Carl, because it was straight out of Days of Thunder. It it wasn't, uh, it was a wrecked race car that he sped out of pit lane with with a direct target on the leader, Not, not with no other intention other than to go door slam the leader of the race under caution, which is absolutely ridiculous. And uh, again, I know we saw the, the the weird big smile on his face afterward, but what Carl Edwards just tried to do was, was go out there and hurt somebody. And, uh, and there was always that weird dichotomy of the Carl versus Carl Edwards smiling afterward, uh, which I always thought was strange. And this was yet another example of that, David, another reminder that uh, competitive Carl is also crazy Carl and uh, <laughs> not to be messed with on the track. And it's a little strange and uh, borderline homicidal at times. And um, that, that this was just a, Another reminder, again, go back and and YouTube the the end of this because he comes out of there like a bullet and with a target on the the number eight car, just boom, right in the door with a, with a, you know, 3,400 pound car, boom, right in the door. I had in my notes, super villain question mark (laughs) in regards to Carl Edwards. Yeah, man. Um, I I do want to talk about this era of what is now the Xfinity series. I've seen folks on social media talk about the modern day Xfinity series, uh, specifically this year, going as far as to say 
it is the best of the three series. And by that, I think they mean the most entertaining. Uh, namely, it's because of the package. I'm sure that it has something to do with it, but the different levels of driving ability from legitimately good prospects to, meh, we'll be kind and say drivers that are probably hobbyists at best. It's a pretty wide spectrum, but those different levels uh, gives an air of the unexpected, some unpredictability. Uh, I don't believe that it's a better uh, series than the Cup Series. I personally prefer watching Ryan Blaney to Ryan Sieg, but it does (laughs) make me miss days like this one, races like this one at Michigan, where it was just a race and the pressure was low, the talent level was elite, and it was more fun, more swashbuckling, more adventurous in what these drivers were willing to try. And we don't have that now in the Xfinity series, obviously. And the Cup series is sort of rigid with what drivers can do or are willing to do, just given uh, the stakes in the road course race, not withstanding and and i and just in watching this race i i I thoroughly enjoyed re-watching it and and just sort of realized like man we're just not we're not going to see talented drivers duke it out with with really no stakes whatsoever we saw a lot of things tried a lot of moves that would not have been made on sunday and we're just i I don't know i don't know if we're ever going to get to that point again Episode 116 starts out where they look back at the 2006 Carfax 250 from Michigan. Look it up. It is entertaining and gave us plenty to talk about. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job posts at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, let's get this started, David. Kevin Harvick is still winless with two races to go before the playoff, but he's heading to one of his best tracks as we all look forward to the Michigan weekend. So we're going to talk about him. Uh, first up, we need to you know get into this broadly, if you will, and, and just think about what do we make of the fact that Kevin Harvick, of all people, is still winless this far into the season. And David, there was two points I wanted to make on this. First of all, when we winless, obviously just it stands out because he's Kevin Harvick. He should win, but we're going to compare so much of this to what he did last year, right? What he's done throughout his career, the curse of the standard we've called it here on before uh, on the podcast, but we, we can't forget just how amazing last year was right. Nine victories. We are 24 races into the season this year, David, after 24 races last year, Kevin Harvick had 21 top tens, 21. Are you serious? I mean, that just puts into perspective 
how good last year was for him. So nothing this year was going to compare to last season, almost no matter what he did. But to go from the nine wins that he had to so far zero is super surprising because let's be honest, to me it's only become more surprising as the year's gone on because the story at the beginning of the year, right, was they made a change to the inspection the process if in the wheel wells, all that stuff. I, I know most of you have heard it, but that was the story. They made a check and whatever, um, they made a change and whatever advantage the four team had last year in the gray area, if you will, whatever they were able to maximize last year, that advantage had been taken away because of a inspection change from NASCAR. Okay. That was eight months ago, David. What has surprised me the most is I don't know. I feel like we haven't seen the improvement or the fix that comes with all the hours of work that go on at the garage, if you get what I'm saying. You know, in terms of, yes, they were, they had an advantage. It was taken away. Now it's time to find another advantage, right? And it seems like they haven't found that yet. And maybe that's the most surprising thing for me. You know, what I've realized is that being winless affects teams differently. Uh, Denny Hamlin's Joe Gibbs team is famously winless at this point this year also, but in terms of competitive speed, execution, getting points, getting results, they have had as dominant of a year as one could have without actually winning. And I'm not certain that we can say the same thing about Kevin Harvick's team. Uh, They might be one or two ticks below the 11 team and just Comparing the two, in regards to speed, the 11 ranks second, the four ranks 10th. Pit crew rankings, the 11's pit crew ranks second, the four ranks fourth. Harvick actually fares better in 550 horsepower peer than Hamlin, but he's below Hamlin in overall peer, second to fifth in that comparison. But the lack of wins has impacted Harvick because of how it's impacted the favored way in which crew chief Rodney Childers calls a race. Typically, and I know that we've noted this earlier this year, but typically there's an early season win in the pocket for this group. Childers likes to ignore stages unless there's a possibility of winning one. And Childers became the guy who would pit Harvick before every competition caution, every stage break, so as to inherit top running positions on the ensuing restarts, that also maximized Kevin Harvick's ability on short runs that has, over the last few years, become more of his trait. He used to be a long run, high surplus passer, best in the series. That's no longer the case. And Childers was calling races to benefit the driver that Harvick is now. Based on what we saw last year, they were incredibly successful at it. But with no wins, that means no guaranteed playoff spot which means you cannot ignore the low-hanging stage points. And I asked Rodney Childers about this a few weeks ago, whether the way he calls races typically will change this year come playoff time, if they're even in the playoffs at all. And he said, yeah, they, they need to pad points, both now and round by round. There are no more inconsequential points for this number four team. And that's a huge change. One win early in the year could have theoretically led to five wins because all of a sudden it puts puts them on a strategy trajectory 
that is more comfortable to them. But zero wins forces them into a box in terms of strategy. That's not really what they do well or typically do at all. And if he wasn't winless, he wouldn't be in this situation. So I'd argue, whereas Hamlin still had, I mean, we've seen the ability of of drivers to have good years without winning a lot or winning at all. Hamlin's had one of those years. Harvick hasn't. They haven't managed this as well. And I think it's the way they piece together a race that the way that they prefer to do it has been removed as a possibility. Now, when we look at, again, we, we are the curse of the standard, right? They're not winning, but it's not like they're, they're finishing 20th or below, right? I mean, a, a solid top 10 or even the top half of the top 10 uh, is where they kind of started out the season or they, they have good speed and they get those finishes. So again, maybe while they're not getting the wins, they're still performing. A lot of teams would love to be where Kevin Harvick is. I guess I took a long way. That, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I took a long way to, to say what I was trying to there, but, uh, but have they improved David? Because even again, even though they weren't winning, they were still having good runs. They were still, you know, top tanning. They weren't leading the laps. We expected out of Kevin Harvick. They weren't winning the races. We would expect out of Kevin Harvick, but they were still having good runs. But have they improved over the course of the season? And what metric do you use to look at that? <laughs> um, <laughs> how, how have they improved? Um, have they improved? Uh, I guess the politically correct answer is yes. The uh, the the non political answer is meh. Uh, like it, it's it's because it's not much uh, yeah. for Harvick's team at SHR specifically. They ranked twelfth in average median lap time after the first five races. And that was the point where Childers went on Sirius and talked about the change to the inspection, how it's impacted them. Um, that was the point when I uh, wrote that article saying that they have they need to change the way that they call races. That was when they ranked 12th. They now rank 10th after hmm. 24 races. And progressively, if you were to gauge their five race rolling average, it's been a positive trajectory. It's been slow burn, mind you, and some races have been far better than others, um, but it has been a positive trajectory. Uh, the the race at Kansas, which in years past has been a, a very good track for Kevin Harvick, Childers told Harvick on the morning of the race that you're going to have to approach this race differently than you've ever approached it. He's, he's you're gonna have to scrap and claw for every position, kind of like what Kyle Bush did uh, towards the end of last season. Harvick did that and uh, ironically finished second to Kyle Bush. It was, it was probably his best performance to date uh, this year, arguably. Uh, but still, they you know they they don't have that kind of lights out speed that has been their signature over, I mean, the entirety of Harvick and Childers relationship dating back to 2014. Uh, So that's what's been missing. But SHR has been very interesting this year. I, I can tell that they have not stood pat because we've seen Eric Almarola pop up with good speed. First at Nashville, he won the pole and had uh, a, a fantastic day. And then at New Hampshire, a track where we pointed out here on this podcast that he was good at, and then he went on and won, and he had race-winning speed. Similarly, Chase Briscoe has 
displayed good raw speed on road courses. But I think Indianapolis, it can be argued, was the first time he had a car capable of winning. And he was in a winning position towards the end of that race. So it's interesting that it's some of these better tracks for these drivers individually. Stuart Haas, uh, their their drivers are, are, are rising to the top. And Harvick's speed progression has been, compared to his stablemates, a little more shotgun than rifle to this point. We don't know what Stuart Haas has up their sleeves. It's possible that we could see Harvick with a winning car on what is traditionally a good Harvick track sometime down the road. Yeah. How about this weekend, David? Like Almarola had his moment at New Hampshire. Chase Briscoe nearly had his moment in Indianapolis. I mean, when does Harvick get his moment? Because we are going to Michigan, one of his best tracks. He swept there last year. Uh, I would have to imagine we think that is possible, right? Even Daytona, David, only two drivers this year have top fives at Daytona and Dega, the two, uh, I, I keep saying plate races, but uh, Harvick and McDowell, they're the only ones with top fives at the drafting, at the big drafting tracks. So he, he could get it done at Daytona. He could get it done at Michigan. That's not, I'm not crazy for saying that, right? Yeah, I don't think you add anything extra for Daytona. I think you you give the effort that is required, but I, I wouldn't go over the top based on what's to come. The the Michigan thing, I, I know he's he is going to be the the talk of this week going into this race. I mean, it it's it's totally a Harvick track. I mean, I I guess he deserves it after being a three-time defending winner. But I, I'm I'm curious though. If Stuart Haas has worked to improve the 750 program that they have under them, that they lacked last season, and it's taken this long to get it up to speed. Maybe the the, the change to the inspection process, I've said a couple of episodes ago, it may have been the best thing to happen to Stuart Haas because now Almarola's got speed on 750 tracks, some of them. Briscoe has got speed on probably his best 750 track. It happens to be a road course. I'm curious if for Harvick, it isn't Bristol, uh, a 750 track with hmm. big banking. Darlington is now a 750 yep. track as well. And given what we saw of Stuart Haas's improvement at Nashville and New Hampshire, he benefited from that. Uh, I'm, I'm perhaps more bullish on the prospect of his Almarola moment coming on a 750 track, even though he's far more reliable uh, statistically as a producer on 550. To me, maybe Michigan goes well, and it probably will, but it seems more likely that he'll have a better 750 car going forward. All right, so let's assume, I mean, he's in the playoff, right? He makes it, and we do get, you know, we start with the Bristols and the Darlingtons of the world. David, you're talking about playoff tracks, so let's talk about assuming he's in the playoff, which he most likely will be, but... Uh, what do we think of his potential playoff run all the way to maybe even Phoenix? I mean, look, we've seen, we did a whole episode of, of, you know, and talk about drivers kind of laying in the weeds, right? You go back a few years, no one was talking about Joey Logano in the summer. Chase Elliott certainly wasn't where he ended 2020 in the middle, in the summer of 2020. You know, we've seen drivers emerge late in the season to go on win titles. So, Kevin Harvick's potential run to a championship. If he can do well at these 750 tracks, David, he's already in round two, right? Uh, what, what do you think of a potential march as uh, he gets into the playoffs? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the first round plays out well for him. It's comprised mm. of Darlington, Richmond, and Bristol. And that, I mean, for him personally, it should be strong. Uh, he won both Darlington and Bristol last year. But specifically for SHR, it seems the progress they've made on this track type, this this round specifically is where it should manifest. So I like him to get through. But beyond that, it's going to get pretty shaky because that second round, Vegas, Talladega, Roval, that is not ideal for most drivers. I'll say that. But based on his lack of wins, uh, that means a lack of playoff points. Points, yeah. He'll be especially vulnerable in this round. This is the round where maybe Harvick can't lay back at Talladega like he ordinarily would. He needs the stage points. And same with the Roval. That that was definitely, in years past, definitely a track where Childers had no use whatsoever for stage points. And that can't be the case this year. So in that round, the number four team is going to have to have almost a new identity compared to years past. And from there... The final round is Texas, Kansas, and Martinsville. And whereas uh, in recent years, we can say that two of those tracks are Harvick tracks, this year they might be Larson tracks. Mm -hmm. Or there's just more parity than in years past. And I think he'll have to win safely somewhere in this round in order to advance to the championship four. Maybe you can make that argument for pretty much everybody. But likely that penultimate round is where his playoff run will end unless they're capable of pulling off something radical that we really haven't seen from them this year. I think that might be the trouble spot. And I I almost fully agree with you. And just in terms of we've seen in the playoffs, right? Good only gets you so far, right? At some point you have to be great. You have to win races. That is the path to a championship. So a good for team, a good Kevin Harvick, uh, again, think about think about all the advantage he had last year, how awesome he was, didn't make it to Phoenix. And that, now compared to what he's doing this year, and you're asking me to find a path to Phoenix for a, a team that is not running as well as it was last year. It's hard for me to connect those dots. So, yes, I agree, um, David, that it will be a struggle. Road courses seem to have been somewhat of a struggle. Again, when you say they have to play the point game that they didn't have to necessarily in years past, I think that's an excellent point. So, uh a path to a title, even though we've seen it happen, we've seen people emerge late in the summer to go on and win titles. Uh, it, it does just see, seem like it would be a, a struggle at this point. We'll see. Maybe we'll be, uh, maybe we'll be looking back and, and ma- making bad predictions, but we'll go back and look on that. David, even further in the future, Harvick is signed through 2023. Right now he's 45. He'll be 47 years old in that final season. We talk about age a lot. He has seen our talk about age. He has responded to that (laughs) talk about age and how uh, I don't think he necessarily agrees with some of our assessments about age and and driver uh, talent and ability and productivity. But as you look at it, David, is he declining as a driver in terms of productivity? And should he continue even past 2023? That seems crazy to me. Uh, firstly, yes, he's declining. I mean, we've addressed the idea that he can no longer pass at will. He used to be the Cup Series world beater when it came to just going out and getting passes, and he hasn't been that guy for the last two or three years. We've also talked about the the schedule for the Cup Series sort of moving away from him. 
That, of course, has nothing to do with the skill, but it might help push him out the door as he might not be as competitive as he'd like. Similarly, Mark Martin, at an older age, had a difficult time with double file restarts, one of the worst in the series during his time. And that rule was fairly new towards the end of his career. And again, it had nothing to do with him, but it exposed and magnified a vulnerability that affected his ability to compete. We don't yet know the nitty and gritty of the rules package associated with the new car, and that might sway some things, but the schedule as is, which is heavy on shorter tracks and road courses, does not suit Harvick. And we've heard his trepidation, firstly, this year, the Bristol Dirt Race. He was vocal about uh, not running the Oval at Indy last weekend. He doesn't care for change. So it might not actually be his decline that pushes him out after 2023. 20, it might be the environment, one that he doesn't find appealing because it doesn't highlight his strengths. And that, I think, is what will be considered more so because the, the decline is happening if you want to pour over the numbers. It's there. It will continue. But I'm at the point, there has been so much change recently in NASCAR that has just gone away from what suits him. I don't feel his exit will be about a decline. I feel it would be about change. Yeah. And of course, very personal question to you. Do you keep competing and how long do you do it? But obviously nothing left to prove from a racing standpoint. Champion, 58 wins. David, it's crazy to think about. We've, uh, you know, we've been watching a driver for 20 years now in the Cup Series. 20 years. Uh, just, I don't know. It's hard to wrap my head around, at least at my age, that uh, 20 years of, co- of competitiveness for Kevin Harvick, and he's still doing it. So uh, kudos to him. Good discussion, David. And we mentioned Michigan a little bit as we were discussing Kevin Harvick. And so we'll go into our Michigan race preview as a whole, because David, there's still a lot left to be done. In last two weeks of the regular season, still playoff spots online as we try to fill in all 16 of the playoff drivers. Uh, David, only one Michigan race this season, one of those tracks and one of those kind of track types that uh, is not as represented on the schedule as it has been in years past. So let's look at Michigan. What matters here? How were Michigan races won? I think about last year, remember it was a doubleheader weekend. Harvick swept the weekend in Michigan. Not not just that, David. He won both stages in race one. So he, he swept, he got max points in race one. Then they inverted the field, right? At least the top 20, I think it was. So he didn't win stage one of the second race, but he won stage two and then won the race. So nearly a perfect weekend last year for a good driver with a fast car. What does that tell us anything about how Michigan races are won? It tells us that it really helps to be Kevin Harvick. (laughs) Uh, But if you can't be Kevin Harvick, it helps to have an incredibly fast race car. Uh, The fastest car in the final quarters of the race has won in each of the last three Michigan races. All three of them were Harvick. But if you can't pull that off, clean air works wonders. And if you recall the last race that Harvick didn't win at Michigan, the spring 2019 race, Joey Logano arrow blocked for the final 18 laps, utilizing the big spoiler Uh, His car wasn't slow. It was the fourth fastest car, but it was able to hold off faster cars 
for long stretches of that race. He led 163 of 203 laps with the fourth fastest car. Hmm. And I think that's the takeaway. It is important to be fast, but at this place, it's important to be fast and have clean air. The fastest car in that race, by the way, did belong to Harvick. He finished seventh, only led 15 laps, never really had consistent optimal track position. And the the reason for this, why clean air is so important, is that there is a lot of on-throttle time and little to no lap time fall off on worn tires. If the fastest car secures clean air, the lead will compound. But if the fastest car is buried, the difference in tire wear will not assist him because there is no real difference. It's already difficult to pop the aero block. So we might see something this weekend like we saw at the end of the first Pocono race. Uh, Kyle Larson had the fastest car in the race. It took something like 25 miles or so to pass Alex Bowman for the lead. But once Larson had the lead, he promptly took off. I think a similar dynamic is in play this weekend. All right. Well, then that can lead to, you know, if track position is that big of a factor, uh, a good short run car versus a long run car, you know, if if the situation presents itself, that may be a big advantage, David. So is there an advantage into how teams should set up their cars and how much of that is situational based on kind of where you stand and what you're looking for? I.e., I guess I'm looking at someone who might need a win. Maybe they're just rolling the dice on a short run at the end track position and hoping it hangs on for 10 laps. You know what I mean? How much of that do you think is going on with teams, short run versus long run? See, I, I I lean into the short run because neither of last year's Michigan races had a green flag pit cycle. And that certainly helped Harvick and Childers who, you know, again, at their zenith, they were short run, intermediate run killers. And while cautions fall differently each race, I think a short run setup could do wonders for a few reasons. Firstly, the restart dynamic is out of whack. The outside groove retains over 80% of the time based on the last four races. The inside groove retains 24.5% of the time. If you're smart enough to recognize the disparity and choose spots accordingly, you can utilize short run speed, blend into a good spot, and then you have the ability to hold position the longer the run goes because it's hard to pass and tires don't wear. That is far easier said than done, I'm sure. It might not be possible for some of these teams to execute that to a T, but that seems the relevant game plan. So in general, restarts are going to be panicked and crowded and dictate the running order potentially more so than anything else. Good stuff. And again, as we get toward the end of this regular season, you know, a late race restart at a place like Michigan, it only gets more exciting for the fans, David. So uh, something to think about there. Uh, Michigan, a 550 track. The last big 550 track was Atlanta. And Hendrick Motorsports, uh, relatively quiet in terms of their speed and results, at least compared to what we'd expect out of them at the 550 tracks. Remember, that was the Kurt Busch versus Kyle Busch uh, uh, race back there in Atlanta the second time around. Do you think that happens again this week, David? Because 
I mean, Hendrick Motorsports kind of being relatively quiet at this 550 track. I don't think so. I don't know if you can make a, a strong comparison between Pocono and Michigan, but if you can, I mean, Hendrick certainly did show up at Pocono. Um, you know, maybe I'm thinking back too much, or if you think back at 2020, if, if Michigan is a track that rewards raw speed, as you just explained with Kevin Harvick, uh, that to me is Hendrick at a 550 track. That is Kyle Larson. So uh, I expect them to show up, I guess is what I'm saying, David. Well, so I see a way in which whatever happened in Atlanta comes to the surface. I I also see a way in which it might not matter. So we can point to NASCAR's insistence that Hendrick stop doing what they were doing with the nose of its cars. Uh, but we should also acknowledge the competitive strength and, in some cases, the gains of Ganassi, RCR, SHR, as we've mentioned, and uh, Joe Gibbs Racing, uh, specifically Kyle Busch. If that was indeed the advantage that Hendrick had, whatever they were doing with the noses of their cars, then all these other non-Hendrick teams, which had viable 550 programs, I pointed this out before that recent Atlanta race. Kurt Busch, uh, the one that he won, he had the second fastest car in the spring race earlier this year. That was a strength that was already present. It became a relevant strength when Hendrick got put back in its corner a little bit. Now, having said all of that, it's not like Hendrick is all of a sudden slow. Larson ranked fourth in median lap time at Atlanta. And as we just laid out, he does not need the fastest car to win this weekend, uh, given the track characteristics. Give me Larson in clean air with a top five car, and he'll be just fine. He he might even lead the majority of this thing and bring home a win. He's the three, four-time winner, whatever it is. It, Michigan, I'm, I'm sure that'll do him uh, just well. Yes, a uh, three-time winner, David, because you segued right into our win picks and he is my win pick for the weekend david uh kyle larson look i mean think of all the things you just laid out speed uh his past in in not a hendrick car at michigan i know it may be boring but i have to go with kyle larson speed kyle larson's performance on 550 track kyle larson's past at michigan Uh, i'd be foolish if i were a betting man I, i would bet money on the five car it would be foolish not to at least in my eyes so sorry to be boring uh, I will be less boring than Kyle Bush is my pick Ooh. for this weekend. He ranks first in peer on 550 horsepower tracks this season. His team ranks as the third fastest on this track type. He's finished no worse than sixth in his last six Michigan races, and that is across two different rules packages. But he spoke about the philosophy behind his car setup this week. He explained that his best Michigan performances come when he has corner speed that allows him to take that, carry that momentum onto the straightaway, and then you're fast on the straightaway. That makes sense with the arrow package. This is a momentum track, but he admitted his team got in the weeds a little bit, working to maximize straightaway speed, and then they were sort of lost in the corners they are now back to focusing on maximizing corners. And that story checks out. He had the 11th and 9th fastest cars at Michigan in 2019. 
Assuming that the change happened before last year's doubleheader, it did the trick. He ranked fifth and second in the two races there last year. So there was more of a competitive gap between the two years than his results would have you believe. We'll see if Ben Bishore keeps with what worked well last year. I, I, I feel like he will. I feel like Bush will be very good on Sunday. All right, so the battle of the Kyles between David and I for the win. We also pick contrarian contenders every week here on Positive Regression. David, I'll let you go first. Who is your contrarian contender for Michigan? Austin Dillon is my contrarian pick. He's had more starts at Michigan in the Cup Series than any other track. And knowing what we know of his Texas win last year, it came in a race with no fall off on worn tires. So Sunday's race should fall into his wheelhouse. And additionally, he is in the throes of a playoff battle. He needs all the good performances he can get. Uh, He's battling fellow RCR driver Tyler Reddick. Reddick's ahead of him in points, even though Dylan has the higher peer for the season and the better finishing average through 24 races. Dylan's lacking the points to uh, Reddick, but Dylan has the edge on results. At least that's the case right now. Uh, a good outing Sunday could help turn that around. We saw that last week at Indy. Uh, Dylan had, I think, 18 stage points and still lost ground in terms of stage points because Tyler Reddick won both of those stages. Tough business this time of year, even when it's against your teammates. All right, you're going with Austin Dillon. David, I apologize. It may not be so contrarian, but I don't think many people are picking him to win. But I'm going with Ryan Blaney. Ryan Blaney is my uh, contrarian contender. His 550 finishes have been good lately. Remember, he had the win in Atlanta, fifth and sixth in Pocono. Uh, good restarting prowess if it does come to a short run uh, at the end. You know, again, maybe a little too high of a, a driver, if you will, for a contender to be a contrarian pick, but I don't think many people are picking him. So I'm going with Ryan Blaney to win for Team Penske, be a contrarian pick at Michigan. What do you think? I'll allow it. Um, <laughs> Ryan, Ryan Blaney, Very stealth in his recent outings. Across the last six races, he ranks fifth in peer. So, I mean, some of these tracks don't. Well, New Hampshire does, but most of these tracks do not translate to the playoffs. Um, but that hasn't stopped this uh, this Blaney uh, and this number twelve team. They've they've done very well coming into this race. They're ending the regular season on a strong note. And I, yeah, I'd like him to have a good day at uh, at Michigan as well. He does seem to represent Penske's uh, hedge on the 550 tracks. All right. Episode 116 of Positive Regression. We'll see how our picks did. We are available on all major podcast platforms. No matter your device, our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posragpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review. That stuff does help in spreading the word about this podcast. We, of course, notice it is so appreciated. Please tell all your friends, especially if they love racing. If you have any questions, we would love to hear them. Reach out to us on Twitter at posragpod. P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. Again, we love answering your questions. Sometimes we do entire episodes dedicated to your smart questions. We would love to do it again, so let us know. David, you are always working hard. What do you got this week? This week on NBC Sports, I'm writing about Kevin Harvick and previewing Michigan. Sounds familiar, right? Uh, I promise a little more detail involved than what you heard on today's episode. And also, 
Six After Six is returning to motorsportsanalytics.com. It's my look at six statistical trends that popped up over the last six races. So be sure to check that out as well. All right, good stuff there. Make sure you tune into my uh, social accounts at Alan Kavana on Twitter, uh, Copa Kavana, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. Uh, make sure you set your lineup, your NASCAR Fantasy Live lineup every Friday. Uh, fan- the latest edition of Fantasy Live will be on NASCAR.com. If you are a fantasy player, I know you are uh, starving for some late season starts, if you will. Maybe you've used all your Kyle Larson's. Maybe you used all your Chase Elliott's. We'll help you out with some quality picks for this weekend in Michigan. Make sure you watch myself and Amy Long. After you listen to this podcast on Thursday morning, thank you for being a subscriber. Uh, Make sure you check out, again, my Twitter account for the latest edition of Quick Hits, previewing your upcoming weekend of racing. There's so much going on beyond just NASCAR. So I do a video for Speed Sport that sets it all up for you. Appreciate you watching that. And uh, yeah, just uh, keep in touch on Twitter as we uh, discuss the entire race weekend. Should be a fun one. And thank you, as always, for listening to Positive Regression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavano. We will see you next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.